Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I'm here in the isolation ward of the fourth sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, because I am still struggling with bubonic plague or whatever it is that I've got. Uh, and in healthier parts of the ministry, we have Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations, a columnist for the Washington Post and author of The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam, which is a wonderful new book. Uh, and Rosa Brooks, who is at Georgetown, as we know, and, and and part of our team here, and written many wonderful books, and probably has one due that she's struggling with or hasn't even started yet, probably. Right, Rosa? Correct. Correct. Don't tell so me. It's, it, Don't tell it's me always a pleasure to discuss somebody's book who's finished, <laughs> actually finished their book. I know. It, doesn't res- make, it, does, it does induce uh, panic, horror, and shame in the rest of us, though. Well, yes, but I mean, we don't have to have schadenfreude. We can be happy for Max. This is a New York Times bestseller. The book has gotten amazing reviews all around. It's a great story, a spy story, a war story, a political story um, about a very interesting, shady character that people, and and brilliant character people have made movies about and so forth. Um, And let me start, Max, by asking the question, why did you write this book now? You know, I think one of the things that people who don't write books don't think about is that when you go and you say, I'm going to go write a book, you then have to live with this person in this place for several years. And it has to make you want to get up in the morning and you have to want to be with them. And, you know, sometimes an idea seems like a good idea, but through three, four years later, it's a nightmare to have to deal with it. Why did you say, I want to spend several years with Edward Lansdale. Five years to be exact. Well, I had my reservations uh, in the beginning, and I actually wrote about Lansdale a little bit in my last book, Invisible Armies, which was a history of guerrilla warfare down through the ages. Uh, And then my editor and I, Bob Weil at Norton, were sitting around talking about what I should do for an encore, and he suggested turning Ed Lansdale into the subject of a full-blown book. And I was initially skeptical because I thought, well, I'd already been there, done that. Why do I want to write more about Ed Lansdale? But he had an intuition that there was more to say, and he was dead right, uh, because I was lucky enough in the course of my research to uncover a lot of new material, including uh, the hidden love letters that Lansdale wrote uh, to this Filipino woman named Pat Kelly, who was his longtime mistress and eventually his second wife. Uh, So I got access to those from Pat Kelly's granddaughter. And then Ed Lansdale's boys now in their 60s and 70s shared with me the letters that he wrote to their mother, Helen, often simultaneously. And so I'm the first person after Lansdale himself to have read both sets of letters to the wife and to the mistress. And I also benefited from the CIA's very slow uh, declassification policies because it's only in the last few years that they've declassified a lot of the documents involving Lansdale's work in the Philippines and Vietnam in the 1950s. And so I'm the first author who's managed to make use of those in a book. And so uh, for all those reasons, I think even though Lansdale has been written about a fair amount in the past, I have a fresh take, a, a, a new perspective, and I have greater insight into his innermost thinking than than, than previous authors have had. And uh, what I found in the course of the last five years or so working on the book is uh, I didn't really grow tired of him because fundamentally at the end of the day, I thought he was a pretty nice, pretty well-intentioned guy. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean he got everything right. He made mistakes. Uh, he did some some things that were not so good, uh, but fundamentally, I think he was he was basically a, a decent guy, and so it wasn't that hard for me to to spend five years of my life living with him. So basically, what I take away from this, because I am who I am, is 
that there were all these salacious letters about the wife and the mistress, and that's what kept you going throughout this thing. <laughs> well, uh, there there was certainly a, a romantic story here that I did not anticipate when I started the book, uh, and it was actually I was actually quite moved by the romance between Ed Lansdale and Pat Kelly. I mean, it's it's interesting with the letters because certainly the letters that Ed Lansdale wrote to Pat Kelly when at the beginning of their relationship, which began in 1946, after he was stationed in the Philippines, those initial letters for a few years after that were certainly of the salacious, uh, heavy breathing variety, telling with with Ed telling Pat how much he loved her and you know that spot behind her knee and et cetera, et cetera. And so <laughs> I felt very voyeuristic. Uh, and in fact, in those early years, in some ways, the letters he was writing to his wife, Helen, uh, were more useful because they are much more matter of fact and actually uh, simply described his work environment uh, instead of talking about how much he loved uh, his wife. Now, of course, human nature being what it is, after the passage of a few years, I have to report that the letters to Pat Kelly also became much more matter of fact and, and much more descriptive of, of the work environment rather than simply, uh, you know, finding 300 different ways to say I love you in the course of a letter. So. Uh, but you know, this was just a very—it was very interesting for me to get this insight into this, into this hidden relationship that was so important to Lansdale, not only personally but also professionally, because Pat Kelly, as a as a Filipina, really served as his entry point into Filipino culture and as a as a cultural guide, and also introduced him to many of the hook insurgents, the communist rebels that uh, he was trying to figure out how to defeat. So she was this this hidden other woman and and I was I'm very happy with this book to be able to restore her to the position of prominence that she rightly occupied in, in Ed Lansdale's life. Yeah, so I yeah, once again deep state radio nerds the, the the listening to our podcast you're getting a perspective on this that you might not have gotten in in all the other reviews that you've read but I want to ask Max one more question then I want to sort of open this up to you Rosa um because you know, when I read this and as, you know, I sort of look at the story, there are a couple of things that just are almost electric to me of uh, their relevance. You know, one of them is, you know, that there are sort of brilliant career professionals out there with great insights um, that even when the government of the United States is working semi-well, um, don't make it to the top. Um, don't influence things as they should have. Their their insights get go go amiss. But of course, in an administration like this one, you know, there's no chance that you know perspectives like this would make it to the top because the guy at the top doesn't read and isn't interested, uh, and the rest of the administration is so dysfunctional that you know it, it wouldn't probably make it too far even up the chain. Uh, then you know you also have the situation of you know, what you refer to as the American tragedy in Vietnam and getting bogged down there. We currently have an ongoing, you know, uh, war in Afghanistan that is longer than Vietnam in which the generals continue to say more troops, longer, we'll get this done eventually. Uh, we figured it out this time. And and and, and we, we sort of haven't really seemed to actually learn the lessons of Vietnam that have come out of there. And 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 similarly, we've got some other things brewing, including as I look at Syria, where America's sort of taken responsibility for a chunk of the country is actually shooting at and killing Russians across a river, um, you know, uh, uh, in in defense of that property. You could see that turning into a quagmire like this. And I just wonder to what extent, Max, and then I'll turn to you, Rosa, you, you, you feel a kind of deja vu um, – component to all of this and 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 these echoes from back then uh strike you as really relevant now well i wasn't you know when i was writing it i was really focused on telling the historical story and uh uh you know unraveling lansdale's involvement in the philippines and then in vietnam but i think it does have some uh relevance for the present day now you know obviously i started this in uh, 2013, where, you know, if anybody had told me that Donald Trump was going to become president, I would have thought that was a bad science fiction movie. Uh, so I certainly did not write it with Trump in mind. But it does occur to me that in some ways, Donald Trump is 
is uh, kind of the anti-Ed Lansdale because Lansdale believed in engaging foreign leaders with trust, empathy, understanding, respect, listening, rather than lecturing them, winning them over uh, through the power of his personality and persuasion, something he did very successfully with Ramon Magsaysay, the president of the Philippines, and then uh, No Dinh Diem, the president of South Vietnam. Uh, obviously, Trump operates in an entirely different manner in which he alienates allies, most recently the president of Mexico, who has now dropped plans uh, to visit Washington. He routinely badmouths entire uh, ethnic groups and indeed entire countries. Uh, and that makes it very hard to pursue the kind of soft power that Lansdale tried to use as his primary instrument in, in, in the Philippines and in South Vietnam. I mean, it wasn't easy in Lansdale's day either because obviously he had trouble getting through to policymakers like Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and people like General William S. Moreland who thought that the answer in Vietnam was more and more firepower, whereas Lansdale was convinced that we would never bomb the Viet Cong into oblivion, that the only way to win was to stand up a uh, durable, legitimate, and popular government in Saigon that could win the allegiance of its people. And that's, I think that's a relevant lesson today and one that's also just as hard to convince policymakers today of that as it was in the 1960s. But we still need to think about that in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Libya, and so many others, where today we finally can kill insurgents, but we can't eliminate entire insurgencies. And our failure to achieve lasting political solutions undercuts uh, whatever tactical success that our soldiers have in those places. And that's, you know, I think that's a failure to learn uh, the kind of lessons that Lansdale was trying to teach in the 1960s. We didn't learn them then. We, we, we have not learned them now. So, yeah, I think there are some, uh, you know, disturbing parallels between uh, Lansdale's situation and today, even though we're certainly not engaged in any conflict nearly as costly as, as the Vietnam War. Well, you know, Rosa, I know you've worked in the Pentagon and you've dealt with issues like this for some time. And, you know, as I sit and I listen to this, I keep thinking, you know, most of the people that have been leaders during my lifetime are people who were influenced to some degree by the Vietnam War. And they, they would constantly talk about learning the lessons of Vietnam, whether it was Colin Powell and the Powell Doctrine, or whether it's the lessons that David Petraeus drew in writing his PhD thesis on uh, at Princeton on the Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera. It seemed like this big formative experience. And yet, look at Afghanistan, look at Syria to some extent. Some of these lessons just don't seem learnable. I don't, you know, it's. I, w I wonder if there's there, you know, we're making a mistake in thinking. Um, that the issue is whether there's a lesson to be learned or whether we can actually achieve some of these things that we keep trying to do. And I suspect you've grappled with this. And I'm wondering what your thought is. It's it's a great question. And and it is one I grapple with, although I, I don't think I know the answer. I, I think it remains a big question. You know, it is is it that we haven't learned the intellect, the intellectual lessons that can be drawn? Uh, or is it simply that we as a nation are not set up in a way that makes it possible for us to act on those lessons because our military is not set up in the right kind of way because our bureaucracy, our funding cycles, our, our politics are not set up to allow us to act on those lessons. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's it, in Afghanistan and Iraq, it was a little bit of both, obviously, that I, I think that clearly after Vietnam, there was uh, a trend within the U.S. military, which, which, which did not include everybody, but you know, to sort of say, we're never going to do that again. We don't need to learn those lessons because the major lesson of the Vietnam War was bad idea, you know, don't go fighting guerrilla armies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that very much you know, animated the, the Powell Doctrine and to some extent the, the lesson some drew from U.S. success in the first Gulf War was See, the moral of the story is, you know, only fight wars in the middle of the desert against uh, a whole bunch of Iraqi tanks. Um, forget all this counterinsurgency stuff. You know, so to some extent, people like Petraeus and, and others inside the military who were trying to get a greater focus on, on counterinsurgency lessons from Vietnam and elsewhere did have to fight some internal resistance. But, but I think that there was certainly a period of time, at least, in which they won. You know, they became that became the intellectually ascendant 
approach to war fighting for a, a brief period of time. It, it didn't last very long, in part because it became immediately apparent that regardless of the level of intellectual commitment on the part of military leaders, that in every possible way, U.S. policy and U.S. institutions and U.S. politics are, are set up to undermine any kind of longer-term, subtle counterinsurgency approach. Uh, so where where does that leave us at the end of the day? I, I'm not quite sure. You know, does it leave us saying, well, we should keep trying to do this if the situation presents itself and it's never too late, and uh, we should continue to try to alter our institutions and so on, so we can do a better job? Or 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 should the lesson we draw be, we can't do this. We're bad at it. In fact, it turns out that nobody's very good at it, uh, or nobody's at least very good at it consistently and in a sustainable way. Um, and we just need to, you know, that there is no meaningful lesson because it's it's irrelevant what your intellectual takeaway is when you say, well, if only we had done X, Y, and Z. Uh, if the if if in fact we never ever ever will do X, Y, and Z because we're simply incapable of it, then it's not actually a lesson that we that we either should or can learn on some level. I, I don't know. I'd be curious to know, Max, your takeaway from that. Well, I, I would too, and I would you know I, in some ways this is kind of one of the big questions of national security policy for the United States, and you might break it down into kind of three categories of potential answers. There's the Barack Obama potential response to this, which is, we don't do any of this stuff very well. Let's just stay out of it. Let's not get involved in a lot of places because we're not going to learn these lessons. They're not learnable. It's not something we can do. And then there's the Donald Trump view of things, which is, um, and I'm overstating it because he probably doesn't have a fully formed view, but it's kind of like, we can do whatever our generals say. If we put enough money into it, we'll figure out a way. Uh, and then I think there's a third point of view, which I might call the George H.W. Bush point of view, which is a little bit of this Powell doctrine, which is, well, if you define a goal quite narrowly and you give yourself all the tools you need to achieve that goal, we might be able to do that, but don't draw the mission too large because there is a point beyond which we will certainly fail. And I don't know whether you sort of buy into that structure, Max, or, or, or have a different view in response to Rose's question. I have kind of a different view, which is I don't think that we have the luxury of avoiding uh, politics. I don't think we have the luxury of avoiding nation building uh, because I think we pretty consistently see uh, that where we don't engage in those activities, our tactical military success tends to be pretty transitory and you know obviously whether it's in world war one where we defeated the germans and then left and had to come back 20 years later uh or more recently in places like somalia haiti uh you know iraq after 2011 when when we tend to leave uh things tend to fall apart and i think we need to focus and you know i think all the stuff that rosa is saying about how difficult it is for the U.S. government to engage in, in nation building and in an effective political action abroad is all very accurate. And in fact, Ed Lansdale himself said, I despair of Americans ever alerting the simplicity of fighting a political war. And I think the, you know, there, there's no question that we tend to favor the technological and, and, and kinetic military action, which is what we are comfortable with, but it's, it's, it's never going to be sufficient. And, and the case for nation building, the case for political warfare is not that it's easy or that it has a stupendous track record, the case is that there's really no alternative unless you're simply willing to say, we don't mind, you know, huge portions of the world uh, going to going to hell. We don't mind like the greater Middle East uh, falling prey to anarchy, to extremist groups, to all the, these other problems. I, 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 but I don't think, you know, unless you're like a Rand Paul isolationist, I don't think that's really a position you can take because, you know, we saw 9-11 how even events in a, in a country as distant and, and seemingly insignificant as Afghanistan can come back to haunt us. And, and we certainly saw in Iraq and Syria what happened after we pulled out in 2011 with the rise of Islamic State and, and leading us to, to intervene back. And I think even a very minimal uh, read of U.S. national security interests of the kind that President Obama, for example, wanted to pursue, nevertheless had us undertaking drone strikes and special operations missions in many, many countries across the greater Middle East. And, you know, I don't think we can avoid that, but I think it's also insufficient. I mean, if, because if you just have 
uh, drone strikes and special operations, which you're really doing, you have a decapitation line of operations where you're trying to decapitate these insurgent groups, uh, but it's never going to achieve lasting effects. It's like mowing the lawn. Uh, be so unless you can achieve some kind of political effect on the ground where you can enable a local government to actually control its territory, uh, you're going to be doing these drone strikes and special operations raids in perpetuity, and, and you're, you're going to have to keep hoping uh, that you that that you that you're lucky all the time, and that the terrorists don't get lucky once. Um, so, may, may, maybe that's where we are. But I do think that there is some slight grounds for thinking that you know a a different approach can pay off. And I think we saw that in the case of Colombia recently, where this very long-running 50-year-old civil war, this insurgency involving FARC, has finally ended. And I think that was enabled by a variety of factors, including primarily, I think it was the rise of a great leader in Colombia, in, in Alvaro Uribe, who is the president who implemented uh, counterinsurgency doctrine in, in a successful way in Colombia. But we also helped with Plan Colombia with providing billions of dollars in aid, also providing advisors. I mean, that's that, to my mind, is is the Lansdale approach in the modern world an example of how that can work? And you know, you can also obviously you can point to a lot of failures, uh, but that's I think that's the model that we have to try to strive to to emulate. Rosa, is this a relevant question? I mean, you, you know, we, we we talk about Afghanistan. There's clearly Syria out there. But as we sort of get into sort of these broader struggles, do you think there's going to be a big temptation to simply change the subject? I think drones do that a little bit. But, you know, you say, well, let's, you know, we'll go after these guys with drones. We'll go after them with cyber. We'll go after them with intelligence. We'll go after them with a few special ops. And we're just not going to use these old conventional approaches anymore. And we're going to come up with a new playbook as groups come out of the woodwork like this. And so it's, this is an old school conversation. Is that, is that? <laughs> well, I don't know how old school it is. This used, this, this is what used to be referred to as, as an unconventional approach, right? Um, but uh, no, I, I don't see under the Trump administration any appetite for the kind of sustained political work of counterinsurgency um, at all. Uh, I, I think that the Obama administration's appetite for that, which was never significant, waned very rapidly. Um, and and Trump is back in the land of uh, what can we do with, with, with raids and drones? And meanwhile, let's threaten North Korea with nuclear war. Um, um, so, you know, I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether you want to call that new or old or a little bit of both. But so I don't I don't you know, I think that in the near term, the discussion of whether we, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda engaged in a very different kind of effort on the ground in various places is probably moot because we won't. Um, that said, I, I, you know, I do think that the world will continue to throw up complicated and difficult situations and Donald Trump won't be president forever and whoever's president next may be interested and willing to grapple with this set of challenges all over again. You know, obviously there's also a question that the alternatives are not, it's in a, you know, we shouldn't fall into the trap of, of framing the, the alternatives as, you know, either we have these sustained, complicated, expensive uh, counterinsurgency efforts that require lots and lots of uh, U.S. personnel both military and non-military with linguistic and cultural expertise and it costs a lot of money and it takes a long time and you know it potentially we screw it up either that's the alternative or uh, we can take this approach the whack-a-mole drone strike and targeted raids approach um, there are plenty of other other ways to approach long-term challenges that relate both to violent extremism and to instability stemming from repressive governance and et cetera that that don't involve you know either of those and i and i i don't want us to frame it as those are the two alternatives um you know it may involve much longer term efforts on the civilian side um but that, that i mean that's maybe a different conversation though let me let me turn the subject to a slightly different component of this you know lansdale was this kind of character that um 
that that seems familiar if you if you read history and has been essential um, in 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 a lot of America's successes overseas, but also in the success of all sorts of countries that have been active around the world. And that is somebody on the ground, very smart, immersed in local um, uh, customs and politics and tactics and issues, um, the kind of sort of experience-hardened expert. And, you know, we currently, you know, in, 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 in this administration, I, I think six, seven of the most important countries in the Middle East don't have an ambassador. South Korea doesn't have an ambassador. So that's sort of the highest level regional expert that we will often have on the ground. We don't have that. Um, we don't have a president that pays much attention to his NSC. There's a lot of turmoil in his NSC. It's a lot of speculation that H.R. McMaster is going to leave. Um, we're not investing in a new generation of people to do this. And in terms of the intelligence community, there's been this kind of vilification of the intelligence community um, and, and, and attacks on them. And this strikes me as kind of, you know, poking our own eyes out. You know, it's, it's, it's just the surest way to be unprepared for the next big problem. Uh, and I, you know, I, in looking at this book, took that away as one of the messages. But I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Max. No, I basically agree with that. I, I mean, I think there, there is one positive thing that's happening right now in the military, which is that the army is creating something called these SFABs, these Security Force Assistance Brigades, which are the first dedicated military organizations designed to support and and train and produce uh, military advisors who traditionally have been the bastard stepchildren in the United States military, but that's an incredibly valuable specialty uh, because we're really going to deal with all of these terrorist threats around the world, uh, primarily with advisors, not with American combat troops. And so now the Army, at least, is recognizing the importance of these advisors. But uh, while we may have better military advisors, we still have a need for political advisors, which is basically what, what Ed Lansdale was. He was a leadership whisperer. He was somebody who cultivated people like Ramon Magsaysay, the president of the Philippines, or No Dinh Diem, the president of South Vietnam. And we don't really have people like that today. Uh, it's a job that, that theoretically could be done by the State Department, but they don't really see that as being uh, their core capacity. And as you alluded to, the State Department is now being devastated. You're losing an entire generation of Foreign Service officers because of this mismanagement of Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump. It's it's a very sad situation. I mean, the State Department did not have sufficient capacity to begin with, and now whatever capacity they had is, is being cut. Morale is going through the floor. Uh, they just don't have the capacity to step up. And so basically, if you're looking around for political advisors who I think are actually, uh, a, that's a specialty we need. I mean, we kind of need an army of Ed Lansdales to go around the world and work uh, with friendly states to buttress their capabilities and to gently steer them in the right direction. That's, but that's a capacity that's MIA within the U.S. government, and we're, and we're not acquiring it uh, anytime soon. And so you know, that's so when we confront these issues, we we tend to view them through this kind of very narrow kinetic military prism of let's go kill some bad guys, even though time and again we've seen that just killing a few bad guys doesn't really make the fundamental threat go away. Rosa, you know, it, it strikes me it's a, it's a little similar to, uh, again, I, you know, I tend to go to the sort of foreign policy canon for most of my references. It, it strikes me as similar to a recent episode of the Ellen DeGeneres show um, <laughs> on which she had Bill Gates. And, and she started asking Bill Gates, famed billionaire, what the price of various groceries were. And Gates was like, I don't know. you know, And he just, he just was completely out of touch. And, you know, he had managed, you know, I mean, he doesn't run his company every day anymore, but he had ran, you know, managed to, throughout his life to sell a bunch of products to people until he got to the point where he was no longer in touch with them. Um, and and this happens in a lot of companies. They sort of lose touch with the basic um, consumers. And it happens also with powerful nations who sort of think they're entitled to their power and they don't have to work the issues on the ground. And 
And, and there's this kind of complacency, this sort of fat, happy, and rich country complacency that sort of gets to the point where you're sort of like Donald Trump thinks, well, of course, we're the United States. You know, I was born rich. I'm going to be rich my whole life. I don't have to worry about this stuff. I don't have to do the work of having global influence. It will come to me because of who I am. And it, it, it seems to me that we're running the risk by gutting out all these things of of just not even being able to do the work. I think you're absolutely right, David. Uh, I think that we have, uh, in all kinds of ways, despite Trump's pledge to, you know, add lots more money to the military budget, uh, that across the executive branch that we've really hollowed out our, our capability to engage in exactly this kind of hard, necessary work uh, on this and, and, and zillions of other fronts. You know, whether you want to look at something like U.S. rule of law assistance or democracy-related assistance uh, uh, or, or the important role that uh, U.S. Broadca- the broadcasting uh, organizations and Voice of America and other media entities have played historically that we in many ways have, and, and this began before Trump, obviously. Uh, it's gotten worse under Trump, but it, it, it's a trend that it goes back several decades. We have really reduced our own capacity to be effective uh, outside of the United States. Um, I, I'm, I'm less sanguine than, uh, than Max is that this new uh, Army Security Forces Assistance Brigade uh, is going to be a game changer in any way. Uh, in some ways, I worry, on the contrary, that it's kind of a sign of our, our weakening national commitment to doing that rather than a sign of a strengthening national commitment in the sense that we're, we're you know, this is, this is what, in theory, special forces do, uh, but it's really, really expensive and time-consuming to create special forces. So this becomes a way to say, well, maybe we can kind of do it quickly and cheaply uh, with conventional troops. And, and my worry is that, you know, we weren't even all that good at doing it with special forces, that this may just be, be a even less good way to get at those skills uh, than we already had. Um, Max, as you've gone out there, we just have a couple minutes left here, but as you've been out there on the book tour, one of the things that's always interesting to me in a book tour is you write the book and then you go out and you talk to a bunch of people um, and the questions sometimes make you think, well, maybe I should have focused more on this, or this is really what's striking the resonant chord. And I'm just wondering, what are people responding to in this In this book? I mean, the response has been great, but I'm just wondering, because it's a different era, um, and particularly interested in why is this relevant to a millennial? You know, why, why, why is the rising generation of leaders going to find this relevant? Well, maybe it's just the nature of the audiences that I talk to, but they do seem interested. And I think there is a desire to learn lessons from Lance Thiel's experience of the kind that we've just been uh, describing. I mean, one of the funny, actually one of the funniest experiences I've had on uh, on book tour is, is maybe not such an epic insight, but it's it was amusing anyway, because, you know, I always talk about uh, Ed Lansdale's adulterous affair uh, with Pat Kelly and these letters that I uncover that trace their relationship. And uh, usually uh, this is uh, the part of the talk, which is uh, one of the one of the highlights for an audience, one of the things that's most fascinating and unusual. Uh, and I, you know, I speak very sympathetically about the Lansdale-Pat uh, Kelly relationship, which I thought was a very romantic and touching one, even if it was also adulterous. Um, but uh, it was kind of amusing to me to to talk about this in front of military audiences at places like the Army War College and Fort Bragg and so forth, and especially to to younger officers, uh, because you can just feel uh, the the disapproval radiate from their ranks, and they sit there very coldly and and don't don't react and and don't laugh at, at some of the humor or so forth, uh, because of course, you know, what Lansdale is doing is, is something they could be court-martialed for doing. This is a violation of the Uniform Code of, of Military Justice. So I was just, this was something, I mean, it's again, not a not not an earth-shattering insight, but it was just amusing to me to, to see how parts of the talk are received differently based on, by different audiences, and especially whether it's civilian or, or military. 
Rose, it only makes me think, you wonder if the commander-in-chief has any idea of the rules of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I think it's a pretty safe bet that the answer to that is no. <laughs> it, would just, it would just be, it would, it would be, it would be, you know, a great day to just sort of sit there and walk him through some of those points. Well, well look, I think this is... Look, but, but he makes up to... for it. He makes up for it with his inspirational courage because, you know, yeah. he just said that uh, if he came across a school shooting, he would run inside even without a weapon. So I think oh, that's right. that's that's the kind of courage that should inspire our our troops and law enforcement personnel. I personally would like to see Donald Trump take the citizenship exam required of would be <laughs> new U.S. citizens. So I'm fairly certain yeah. he wouldn't do too well on that one either. Yeah, that would it, be no, more, it seems more that interesting they're... than the mental acuity exam that he took. <laughs> no, no. I think I think that's true. I think there are very few tests that Donald Trump could pass, except for perhaps some paternity tests, um, <laughs> which we, you know, probably will never see the results of. You wonder whatever happened to Stormy Daniels. She was going to come public with her story, but you know, you sort of she's been silent. You sort of wonder if another deal has been cut. Um, There's also the Playboy Plainweight, who was who also had her story out. Yeah, well, hmm. exactly. Yeah. But yet somehow the, the volume has been turned down on all those things. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch all of this, but it's very useful periodically to stop, take a look at history, get a different perspective on this. Um, the Road Not Taken is a terrific, terrific book. Uh, it is exactly the kind of book that every single one of the deep state radio nerds should be reading um, and buying for their family and friends. And so we you know, commend it to you. We thank you, Max. Congratulate you on the success of the book. Thank Hello, this is David Rothkopf. Welcome to another of our Deep State Radio one-on-one -on -one conversations, where we try to take a little bit of a deeper look into the news with an expert. I'm delighted that we're joined today by uh, one of my favorite Middle East experts, Hisham Mellum. And welcome, Hisham. Thank you, sir. Uh, I, this week... Uh, although here in the United States, a lot of people have been focused on Kavanaugh and all of that drama, there have been a couple of developments um, that I think are quite interesting with regard to this administration and its Middle East policies. Both had to do with the International Court of Justice. This administration, as you know, doesn't like international courts or international sure. law or international institutions or the idea of the international community very much. But in one case in the International Court of Justice, the Iranians won a judgment regarding sanctions on, on humanitarian aid right. items. And uh, that was related to uh, an old and long forgotten treaty, a 1955 Treaty of Amity between the two countries. <laughs> Um, and so the next day, the U.S. effectively tore it up and said, oh, yeah, well, we don't recognize this treaty. Of course, we haven't been friends with Iran since 1979. So, um, you know, it was kind of a, a gesture. And then at the same time, that was done by Mike Pompeo a little bit later that day, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton said, you know, while we're at it, we're going to withdraw from uh, this amendment to the Vienna Convention, um, because the Palestinians are coming after us under that in the International Court of Justice, and you know we 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 can't be bothered with that, and so it's it's too political. And what struck me was, right now the U.S. isn't doing much in the Middle East, but it is turning up the heat fairly consistently on both Iran and Palestine. And so I thought I'd talk to you about each. Let's start with Iran. Um, what do you think of the move? Was it an empty gesture or or is it a foreshadowing of things to come? No, this is part of uh, the policy of ratcheting up uh, pressure on the Iranian regime by the Trump administration. As you well know, the president uh, withdrew from the uh, nuclear deal with Iran. The president uh, imposed the first... Uh, 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 basket of sanctions against Iran, and the next one and the and the biggest one will come on November fourth, which would touch on the banking sector in Iran and the energy sector, where Iran is really vulnerable. And because of this, we have seen major international companies fleeing 
uh, Iran. And uh, although the European Union and the Russians and the Chinese are trying to create uh, an international mechanism to circumvent the American uh, uh, sanctions, uh, most experts believe that Iran will, will really feel the pinch in the next few weeks and months. Again, this is part of the policy of pressuring Iran, uh, encouraging domestic uh, unrest. This administration officially says, look, our policy is not regime change in Iran. Our policy is radical change in the behavior of the regime in Iran. And if you remember a few months ago, Secretary Pompeo gave a major speech on Iran in which he listed 12 American demands that Iran should accept in order to, quote-unquote, normalize relations with Tehran. Now, if Iran accepts half of those conditions, Iran would cease to exist as the country that you and I have known for 40 years. <laughs> We're old enough to remember. So th this speak, is how we speak, should look. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I was very young. I don't I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I remember. I remember you. Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you were an adolescent at the National Security Council. That's uh, when true. When we met the first time. Yeah. So this is really uh, what, what you have here. If, if you looked at the president's speech at the United Nations General Assembly a few days ago last week, uh, if you remember last year, it, uh, the, the, the boogeyman was North Korea when President Trump threatened to destroy, quote unquote, Korea. This year, the boogeyman is Iran writ large. And uh, let's be blunt about this. There are powerful states in the Middle East that are encouraging the president to pursue this hard, hard line. And let, let me even go further. There are people in official positions and some key American allies in the Middle East who would like nothing better than to see the United States drubbing Iran, giving the Iranians, their, in their opinion, their, their comeuppance. And that's why this is a very dangerous uh, uh, game. You and I agree, and I want to speak for you too, that this regime in Iran is, you know, repressive, atavistic, uh, antagonistic towards the United States. They've done unspeakable things to the Syrian people. Uh, they have uh, playing a nasty role in Yemen and Iraq and Lebanon, all that. But uh, this is, as, as Bignev Brzezinski used to say, when he was alive, that Iran is a serious country. And yes, we made, you know, uh, an American uh, administration can take a tough position vis-a-vis -vis Iran, but you have to always allow room for, for, for diplomatic activities. And the United States cannot do this by itself, by alienating its, its uh, uh, European allies in particular. So we are on a slippery slope here. And while I don't believe that the Trump administration would, would like to go to war with Iran, but the tension between uh, America's allies in the region, whether the, the, the Israelis and the Iranian forces in Syria, uh, the, Iraq, uh, the Saudis, and what's happening in Yemen, um, a local incident uh, could trigger a wider conflict. And then we would see local players trying to drag the United States into this. So, uh, and, and, and we know very well that there are people like Mike Pompeo and particularly the National Security Advisor, John Bolton. Um, uh, I don't want to even mention Rudy Giuliani. And, and Giuliani and Bolton have been frequent speakers uh, with the Mujahideen Khalq organization for tremendous amount of money every year, lambasting Iran and calling for regime change in Iran. So... Uh, uh, um, I wonder if 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 uh, if John Bolton fancies himself as Iago whispering in the ear of Hamlet dash uh, um, uh, Donald Trump, and 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 that's why we may have a, a very dicey situation in the next few weeks and months vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Iran. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um... First of all, you know, I think Trump in some ways is the opposite of Hamlet. Obama was Hamlet. Not, not Hamlet. I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Othello. 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 <laughs> yeah, and I think Othello, I think Othello is, the, is, the, is a better analogy, of course, because Othello, you know, was very, you know, sort of impulsive and full of, you know, he was, he, Iago was able to wind him up. And Trump, and Trump is, you know, just ready for that. The other country, you know, I mean, you, yeah, and you make a good point, you know, Iran 
as as Big used to say, it was a serious country. Um, we, you know, one of the pillars of the region, five thousand years of history. Absolutely. Um, uh, and um, and it's not going to go away or be bluffed away um, by by any U.S. administration. On the other hand. Palestine is a kind of newer, more fragile construct. And if if any place is getting the heat from the Trump administration at the moment, it's the Palestinians. As we cut off aid to them, as we pull out of uh, UN aid agencies, as we challenge them on the international stage, as we try to squeeze them. And frankly, as the United States does something which I don't, you know, I don't think it's gotten quite as as much attention as it should, which is essentially said, we're not playing honest broker anymore. We are not seeking, you know, balanced outcomes. We're on the side of Israel. We are against the Palestinians. And this is new, right? I mean, the U.S. has, that has not been our position before. Sure. Since the beginning of what we know as, quote unquote, the peace process, uh, in which both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations tried to mediate between the Palestinians and us. Everybody knew that in the end, there are special relationships between Israel and the United States for a variety of reasons. We can talk about them for hours. Um, so there was always that, you know, uh, uh, pro uh, Israeli proclivities on every American administration. But we've never seen an American administration that has been hostile. And that's the word, hostile to the Palestinians, as this administration. Uh, Jimmy Carter is different than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is different than Obama. But all of them tried, I think, honestly and seriously at times and, and uh, worked hard to, to mediate uh, for a resolution that, that would be acceptable at least by a majority of, of the peoples on both sides, if not everybody. This is an administration that is out to punish uh, uh, the Palestinians because the Palestinians dare to say uh, you shouldn't move the embassy to Israel uh, to to to, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, we want a, a con- contiguous Palestinian uh, state on the West Bank. I mean, the fundamental things that most American mediators and most serious Israelis and most serious Palestinians. Uh, uh, hope to achieve. I mean, we all know what are the contours of an eventual peace treaty between the Palestinians and the and uh, and the Israelis. This is a radical American administration that is out to really cow the Palestinians, push them to cry uncle, to accept their diktat, not only conditions or views or suggestions, but just American diktat. And um, uh, uh, the, the uh, Trump and, and Kushner and, 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 and company were indignant because the Palestinians dared to say no and to object to the, on, on, the, on the issue of Jerusalem and uh, other, other pro-Israeli positions taken by, uh, by this administration. I mean, let's be blunt about it. Here you have the American ambassador in Israel, the chief uh, 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 member in the uh, so-called peace team. These people are on the record as supporting Israeli settlements in the Palestinian-occupied territories. They even finance these things. We've never seen anything like this before. And there is that vindictiveness against the Palestinians that is expressed every time this president opened his mouth about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he keeps talking about the deal of the century. This is not a deal. These are two people who have deep roots in this region. And uh, there, is a, there is a conflict over the patrimony of what we know as historic Palestine. And these people have, have legitimate claims and, and, and any serious mediator should take that into consideration and not belittle the, 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 the position of both sides. And these, uh, uh, look, I mean, we, we, we as the United States, we used to be generous in, in, in providing aid to, to, to the refugee relief, the UNRWA organization, which uh, helps Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and Jordan, and these are American allies in the region, uh, to provide medical services, educational services to kids, to children. Uh, and now we are going to have empty schools because there is no money. Now, um, uh, if you talk to the administration, they tell you nobody's entitled to this kind of aid. Okay, fine. Uh, but this used to be one of our 
claims as 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 serious mediator who care about the uh, uh, rights and uh, of, of, of Palestinians and Israelis and everybody in the region. We are abdicating our responsibility, our moral political responsibility as the United States in the region. We are withdrawing from the region. We are seeing the region now uh, under uh, the sway of the Russians, as we see in Syria and other places. We see a Turkish-Iranian conflict, uh, I mean, competition to determine the future of Iraq or the future of Syria. Uh, these are serious developments that are taking place in our absence. And uh, uh, the president of the United States wanted just to withdraw every, all the American forces in, in, in Syria, which are basically 2,200, uh, you know, uh, soldiers, uh, and, and leave the whole area to the Russians. I mean, uh, just because we don't uh, we don't care about these issues, and and the president even insults his allies. Look what he's been saying about the Saudis recently, uh, and he claims erroneously, of course, that we, the American taxpayers, are subsidizing the Saudi military, which is not true. The, the Saudis and the Emiratis and all the Gulfis spend billions upon billions of dollars um, to buy American weapons. And in fact, they are contributing to uh, R&D for, uh, for certain industries, uh, as the Emiratis did. You know that. And so um, uh, he insults the Saudis and he asks them for protection money. We subsidize the Israeli military. We subsidize, you and I as taxpayers, the Egyptian military. Uh, and, and I'm not defending the Saudis. Uh, maybe they deserve to be, to be humiliated like that because they love the president. And, but look at how he, he treats them. He looks at Saudi Arabia and he sees a bank vault. He doesn't see a country. He sees a bank vault. And I need my share. Well, I, I think that's a, a fair analysis and a very thoughtful analysis of what's going on. I bet as expert as you are in the goings-on in this region, you never thought a president could do worse at it than Obama, did you? Absolutely. Yes. You, you know me. I criticized Obama for his handling or mishandling of Syria. I wanted Obama to be more assertive. Uh, I supported him when he deserved support. Um, uh, but I really never thought in my life, and I lived in this country, and this is my home, and this is my last refuge since 1972, and I've never, I never thought in my wildest or worst nightmares that we would have an American president who would do what he is doing to this country, but also do what he has been doing to the United States and the world. I mean, what have become of us? This is the last refuge. I mean, if the United States is 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 um, uh, loses the trust of, of 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 many countries and many peoples in the world, if we really become more isolationist, um, we will allow the likes of Vladimir Putin and the, and the Chinese and all of these uh, major powers uh, to run amok in the world. Really, even even today. Uh, if you have a disaster in Africa or anywhere in the world, people instinctively look up to the Americans. They expect the Americans to do something about these things. And this is this is what it means to be you know, a moral and political leader in the world. I mean, and we're losing this. We're losing in the Middle East. Now people look up to Putin. Can you believe it? I mean, some Europeans look up to Putin. And, uh, and, and and Russia is intervening in elections left and right, um, and, and they're getting away with it. And the Europeans, with all our respect for the Europeans, I mean, for, who for the last 500 years created the best culture that the world ever seen, Europe today is an old, old continent that can barely defend itself. And look at Europe. I mean, can you, can you have a really a serious leader in Europe? That's why the United States leadership is, is, is needed more than ever. I mean, these are crucial times that the world is going through, and, and, and there's, no, there's no one at, uh, on the deck. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Well, look, I hope you'll come back to discuss this with us on a regular basis, because I love talking to you about it, and I know that our listeners love it, and uh, it adds a huge amount of value. So we thank you very much for joining us for this one-on-one, -on -one, and uh, hope you'll be back again soon. Hello, and welcome to one of 
Deep State Radio's new briefs and debriefs in which we go to our experts and we drill down into an issue that is on the minds of the Deep State and Deep State Radio nerds everywhere. Uh, and clearly this week, one of the issues is the uh, confirmation battle over um, Kavanaugh uh, and the allegations that have been made against him. Uh, Ed Luce, uh, one of our core team uh, family here, uh, wrote a, a good piece on this about how this reveals the true nature of the U.S. Uh, as you know, Ed, these briefs and debriefs are essentially eight to ten minutes to talk about these things. Uh, I'd just like you to uh, open up and give us your take on where this Kavanaugh thing stands and, more importantly, what can we learn from it? Uh, oh, thanks, David. I mean, where it stands right now is kind of at an impasse um, in that, uh, as, as you know, um, Dr. Ford saying that she wants an FBI inquiry into her allegation um, before um, before she'll consider testifying. And the Republicans, uh, what Senator Chuck Grassi, the chairman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee is saying, no, we've scheduled you for Monday. If you can't talk Monday, we're going to go ahead and have a vote. And uh, uh, I'm not sure how that is is going to resolve itself. But I think if if uh, if she doesn't agree, agree to appear on Monday and President Trump doesn't order the FBI um, to uh, investigate her allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, uh, and the Republicans go ahead and confirm Kavanaugh all the same, then this is going to look really, really awkward in terms of um, the Republicans' midterm strategy. And they're kind of in a lose-lose um, situation politically. But the larger point that I was trying to write about earlier this week uh, is the just the way that this um, episode really crystallizes uh, 25 years on um, from from the Anita Hill um, hearing, 20, 27 years on from the Anita Hill hearing um, over Judge Clarence Thomas, how much further uh, the demographic split uh, has gone in in the last two three decades, and that we've you know still got all white, all male um, uh, Republicans on that um, Judiciary Committee. Um, uh, the entire committee was all white, all male, um, both parties, um, 27 years ago. Now it's just the Republican side. On the Democratic side, we've got we've got four females, we've got non-whites, uh, like Senator Cory Booker. Um, and so the prospect that this is going to unleash a far more poisonous culture war um, a Me Too culture war between the two parties, where essentially we've got a, we do have the male party, the white male party, and then we have the everybody else party, uh, the Democrats, uh, is I think both very real, but both very real, has implications for November in terms of female turnout, particularly if 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 Kavanaugh is uh, confirmed not, uh, regardless next week, um, but it's also uh, it's also going to inject even more poison into the already highly toxic Washington um, political climate than we, we already have. And, and that's, you know, for, for those of us who wish to see this system working at some point, that's a very, very troubling prognosis. And, but I think it's a realistic one. Otherwise, I wouldn't uh, have been writing about it. Well, it does, it does suggest, you know, multiple divisions, male, female, Democrat, Republican, um, but I think one of the big ones that it suggests is the one that opened the door to Donald Trump, which is kind of inside the beltway, outside the beltway. You know, it has to be that the part of this that is most uh, infuriating to many Americans is that it's so dysfunctional. Why is it going on this way? Why are hearings, you know, absent the 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 documents that are necessary to do them? Or why are they rushed through? Or why is there, you know, this last-minute gamesmanship or this gotcha kind of politics? It, it's, I mean, the Kavanaugh thing is quite apart from the, the the merits of the arguments for or against Kavanaugh. Kind of, you know, uh, uh, an, an in-depth look at how broken Washington is, isn't it? I mean, coming up close to an election, that too could be. Um, decisive and and that might actually 
you know, cut back in favor of Trump. It could do. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'd be inclined to think it's going to increase, you know, what some people call the pink wave, female turnout to vote against Republicans, if that's if that's uh, if the Kavanaugh confirmation is going to happen regardless. But, you know, there is there is some geology to this. Um, in terms of Kavanaugh's background, you know, he's not some sort of independent jurist who's worked his way up the judiciary, uh, you know, and, and has a conservative bent and therefore, you know, was on the Federalist Society shortlist. This guy was the chief number one hack for Kenneth Starr, for the Kenneth Starr um, investigation into Bill Clinton. He was the person who put out a lot of the leaks and the off-the-record briefings to um, to the media in the late 1990s. Uh, and, you know, he's he's been sort of groomed as, you know, one of the sort of ultra conservative um, talents of the future um, ever since. Uh, he's a very, very ambitious, very conservative um, um, political hack who became a judge. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that 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 gives some geology to how the Democrats feel about this. So when he says, which I think in other contexts, you know, were you not being nominated to the Supreme Court quite reasonably? Look, something that happened when I was a, a drunken teenage boy 36 years ago, you know, that I uh, no recollection. Well, actually, he categorically denies it. But even if he'd said, of which I have no recollection, you know, is just not actionable, particularly a few days before the vote. When he says that, for most people, you would sort of have quite a lot more sympathy. But if you're um, if you're one of the Democrats up there and you know what his background is, you know that, uh, you know, when he answers that gives non-answers to questions about Roe v. Wade or about marriage equality and so forth, that this is just a complete you know, euphemism, um, that he has absolutely one clear conservative agenda, then that sort of puts it in a slightly different perspective. The, this this lady, Dr. Ford, didn't just make this 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 uh, nomination hearing controversial. It has a deep geology to it. Um, and I think that context is really important. Well, I think that's a really uh, important point, And I think it's the core of what we want to talk about here. I think, frankly, you maybe, Ed, should have been the strategist for the opposition to Kavanaugh because the tactics that they've used have actually been sort of blunter and less effective than the point that this guy is a hack, that when it was on the star hearing, he was there saying, let's dig and find out everything disgusting we can about Clinton, that he went after Vince Foster and went after some of the sort of dark underbelly kind of right-wing conservative um, uh, conspiracy theories in order to achieve a political goal, that that's what he's been doing all along, that he's dressed up in the, 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 the kind of you know, sort of veneer of a jurist. Um, he went to the right schools, but all along working with the Federalist Society, all along giving the speeches he gave, he has been essentially a political operative advancing a hard right agenda. And the president wants him because of that. And the president wants him because he thinks he's going to protect him. And that should have been the core issue. And Frankly, the fact that he lied under oath the last time he was confirmed um, uh, is also disqualifying this thing uh, the, with Dr. Ford may also be disqualifying, um, but this guy has no business being on the Supreme Court of the United States. I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I think um, uh, the, uh, the, ba the background to this man's career, you know, is completely... Uh, unmistakable. Um, we, we know exactly who he is. And the, the machinery behind uh, his advancement, you know, was uh, just think of how um, uh, quickly that letter 65 women signed, um, uh, attesting to his good character and, and virtues uh, uh, when he was uh, a teenager, uh, at the time that the allegations arose, that came out 18 hours you know, after it emerged that um, these allegations were being made. Just 18 hours it took, apparently, um, to find 65 women who knew a boy 36 years ago who went to a single-sex school. Uh, you know, clearly, clearly it wasn't just 18 hours. Clearly this had been prepared, you know, for any eventuality. Um, and so the, the strength of the machine behind him I think is what's carrying him. Because if you look at the caliber of the individual, not very impressive. I mean, and, and leave, the, leave the allegations aside, 
his answers not very sophisticated not very quick-witted not not um not not a not a high caliber hack a, a, a fairly mediocre one it's it's becoming clearer and clearer well yes I th and thank you for that i you know just to wrap and put a button on it and go back to your pink wave point um you know, one of the few consistent policies of Donald Trump has been to be an advocate for sexual harassers and sexual abusers and his own sexual harassment and sexual abuse, whether it's defending Roger Ailes or Rob Porter or Corey Lewandowski or Kavanaugh. He always steps up uh, and says, uh, this is a good guy. Uh, I support him. I'm behind him. And the Republican Party has not pushed back. They have owned it. They got the guy who was the pussy grabber. They elected him president. He hasn't changed. They haven't been able to persuade him to change. This is a pattern. And it will not be lost, I think, on women when they go to the polls in November. I also hope it's not lost on men of character who simply do not approve of this kind of disgusting behavior. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't mean, know if you want to add to that. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to force you to editorialize here, but. Well, I, I mean, I do, I do think this is going to, you know, heighten um, uh, uh, democratic enthusiasm, not just amongst women, but, uh, you know, th this is a losing there's no, there's no real upside for the Republicans now. Um, uh, you know, if they wait for an FBI investigation, which could take weeks, um, and then lose the Senate in November, they're going to lose this seat, and that's clearly dictating their panic. But if their panic dictates um, the speed of this, then they're going to to bring the base out on on the other side to an even greater de degree than it than it already. So, it, you know, it's a losing strategy. Um, uh, for the Republicans, um, whatever they do. Well, I think that's right. Thank you, Ed, for this. Thank you for joining, uh, as is appropriate, for one of the very first of these briefs and debriefs here at Deep State Radio. Thank you to everybody for listening. And for more briefs and debriefs and for more rants and for more regular podcasts and for more content, go to www.deepstateradionetwork.com. Join up, be a member, support the Deep State. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.